if a situation presents itself and you could commit fraud and not suffer any consequences, would you do it? When someone thinks about committing fraud, they're likely thinking about the financial benefits that can come from it. What goes through a person's mind in the moments leading up to and during a fraudulent act? Is it about the money or is it more? Our next guest, former licensed mortgage broker and now true crime author, Matthew Cox, was declared as one of the most prolific mortgage fraud con artists of all time by CNBC's American Greed. In this episode, Matt and I discuss his mindset around money before, during, and after his time in prison. He shed some light on how perpetrators rationalized their behavior and what motivated him to commit fraud. I'm Bob Wheeler, and this is Money You Should Ask, where we explore why we do what we do when it comes to money. Matthew Cox is a former licensed mortgage broker and brokerage business owner. He's a nationally recognized expert on white-collar crimes, specifically the creation of synthetic identities, the fraudulent acquisition of credit cards, personal loans, and mortgages, in addition to real estate scams. He has consulted with both the FBI and the U.S. Secret Service, and he is also a former federal inmate. Matt's criminal case received national media attention after he used forgeries combined with stolen and synthetic identities to swindle America's biggest banks out of an estimated $55 million. Despite numerous encounters with bank security, state and federal authorities, Cox narrowly and quite luckily avoided capture for nearly a decade. Eventually, he topped the Secret Service's most wanted list and led the U.S. Marshals, FBI, and the Secret Service on a three-year chase while jet-setting around the world. Matt has a Bachelor of Arts from the University of South Florida, giving him unique expertise in graphite, printmaking, graphic design, and as it turns out, forgery. He is a published author of several popular true crime books, including Shark in the Housing Pool, Once a Gun Runner, Generation Oxy, Bent, and It's Insanity. Check out Matt's Inside True Crime channel on YouTube, where he highlights unique, clever, and bizarre true crime stories. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So, Matt, you started out in mortgage financing and all that kind of stuff. And when you were going into the mortgage industry, did you have this idea that like, hey, this will be a great place to commit some fraud? Or was it that there was just some opportunities like stated loans and things that just presented themselves and said, hey, here's an opportunity. Nobody's paying attention. No, I went into it thinking it was a legitimate business. I'd been an insurance adjuster. I mean, I went to college like I had never broken the law or anything. It's just literally I was just in such a bad financial spot. And my manager, my first loan, I basically, it had a 30-day late. Like if you know anything about mortgages, you have to be 24 months having a perfect payment history on your rent or whatever case may be. And this person had been 30 days late on their rent. And my manager suggested I white it out. And she said, they'll never catch it. And I was like, oh my, (laughs) like, whoa, I was shocked. But she was so flippant about it. And I trusted her. And she was like, oh, listen, I do it all the time. It's not a big deal. They're never going to catch it. There's a ton of documents. They're not going to call. They're not going to ask. And even if they do, she's like, it's not a bit, the worst that'll happen is you'll lose your job. Nobody's calling the FBI. <laughs> and I was like, I really need the loan to close. And I whited it out and whatever, four or five days later, the loan closed and I made like 3,500 bucks. And it just kind of emboldened me. Yeah. Well, I mean, in a way, there's a lot of complicity with the industry. 
because people want you to just do the loan. People want you to make it happen. I know a lot of bankers and stuff that'll say, eh, just make sure it works. And as long as you pay the loan off, nobody cares. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely how people feel. You know, I think the problem is very easy to justify. I'm helping this person. I'm helping them get into a house. They're going to make the payments. They're going to, you know, you can justify anything if the situation is right. Yeah. So you said your financial situation was a little tight. And so there was some motivation to make sure you got that 3,500 bucks. Do you remember when you started going, oh, shoot, I'm doing this a little more often than I should? Or, oh, man, I'm crossing a line. Do you remember, like, is there any hesitation or was this like, oh, cool, I didn't get caught or it didn't feel like you were doing anything really because you're helping people initially? I, you know, it's easy to justify. So, I mean, sure. Yeah. Every time I would get caught, I would think, oh, man, I went way too far. Like, oh, wow, they caught me. They this, this is it. And then I would talk my way out of it and nothing would happen. (laughs) And I realized that I was getting better and better at it to the point where I was getting caught less and less. And so, like I said, every time I got away with it, I just became more and more emboldened. Yeah. Was there ever a point when I was like, oh, I need to pull back. I need to stop. I need to, I I know the right thing to say. (laughs) I'm not interested in the right thing to say. I'm interested in. No, like there was never really a time with, there was multiple small times, but of course I immediately talked my way out of it and, you know, and I got away with it and I was like, hey, let's keep going. Well, yeah, at a certain point, the money's coming in, the finances aren't so bad and sort of looks a little sexy having a bigger bank account. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's face it. It's fun to beat the system. It's fun to try something and get away with it. I used to always say like, oh, I started because I needed the money. And and I did. I needed the money. I was absolutely, I needed the money. But the problem was, is that a year later, you've got plenty of money. Right. Why are you doing it now? Well, now it's a way of life and I enjoy it. I was good at it. And that was really it. Everybody wants to be good at something. Got to be good at something. And did you ever feel like, I got to keep looking over my shoulder or at a certain point, you're like, I'm probably home free. It's funny. People ask me that. Like, once again, I know what the appropriate answer is. I was riddled with anxiety. I couldn't sleep at night. I knew what I was doing. I was fine. I was good. Life was good. I was taking Paxil, was like an anti-anxiety drug. I had Xanax. Not that I think I was addicted or anything like that, but I think it handled any anxiety that I did have. And I just remember... People used to always joke, like, you could call up Matt and tell him, man, your whole house just burned down. I'm here in front of your house with the fire department. It burned down. And I would be like, oh, okay, well, that's cool. No big deal. <laughs> I got homeowners. You know, I always make money on a fire. It'll be all right. I mean, I didn't have a lot of personal stuff, so I'm not really attached to anything. I'll get new pictures. Like, nothing really bothered me. Yeah. And even when I was on the run, I was on the run for like three years. People were like, well, man, you're constantly worried. Not really. Yeah. And speaking about being on the run, when you're on the run, I mean, can you use your ATM card? Do you have to work in cash? I mean, are they constantly looking for you or it's just, yeah, I need to be aware people are looking for me, but I'll just go to Chicago or I'll head over to Pacoima. You know, I was, (laughs) (laughs) I was number one on the Secret Service's most wanted list. Yeah. They were looking. They were looking pretty actively. So there were news programs, there were national magazine articles. There were the St. Petersburg Times did about 35 articles on me alone. I mean, I was in the Chicago Tribune. I was, they were looking. They were looking. But by the time I went on the run, I had already figured out how to steal someone's identity and go into the DMV and get a driver's license in their name. 
I've had 27 driver's licenses in seven different states. I've had two dozen passports. I've traveled in and out of the country. Passports were issued by the State Department. DMV issued all of the driver's licenses. So I would get pulled over and get traffic tickets. Listen, I stole a guy's identity one time, bought a car and a house in his name, had credit cards in his name, the whole thing. I got so many tickets in his name, I had to go to driving school as him. (laughs) So I wasn't concerned. I was more concerned about getting recognized. I wasn't that concerned, but there were a few times when I actually got arrested, brought to the police station, and I saw my wanted poster. And I caught my way out of it, and they let me go. They didn't know who I was. And so I went and got plastic surgery. Like, I've had two hair grafts, had a nose job. I had a, it's called a mini facelift. Okay. Where they go in your here and they suck out all the fat and teeth done, some lipo, you know. So I had some work. So I was, you know, I was okay. It was all right. Yeah. That's, and was there a vision? Was there like, here's the plan. My 12 year plan is at a certain point. This is a much better interview, by the way, <laughs> than I thought. But this is going to be a very serious show. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's much better. I was like, what am I going to talk I don't you know, talk about finance. You don't want finance advice from me. Yeah. So, but okay, go ahead. So what was my... Yeah, did you have a vision? Do you have a 10-year plan, a 12-year plan? Like, I'll be on the run for 50 years, but some point I'll go overseas. Like, I'll try to get back into the mortgage industry. <laughs> you remember the scene in The Joker where Aaron Batman, when they asked him in The Joker, he's like, do I look like I have a plan? <laughs> I'm just a dog chasing a car. Like, I wouldn't know what to do if I caught it. So my plan consisted of, (laughs) I figured at some point I'll have three or four million. I'll have a new identity. I'll go to another country and I'll set myself up. And ultimately that evolved as I realized the authorities were probably getting pretty close. Yeah. There was going to be a program on Dateline. Dateline was going to do like a one hour special. At that point, I started saying, okay, well, I got to leave. This is getting crazy. So I was going to go to Australia and Australia at the time, if you went to Australia with like $200,000 and a business plan, you could go there. They would allow you to buy, you could become what's called a permanent resident alien. Okay. So I can't vote. I can't get a job, but I can live there and start a business. Now I was going to go with about $3 million and a business plan and in someone else's name, that's not a felon. The reason I didn't want to try to be a citizen is at that point you get fingerprinted. But there was no fingerprinting if you were just a resident alien. So I was going to go to Australia with several million dollars, and that was the plan. It didn't happen. The Secret Service, they were adamant that that wasn't going to happen. So yeah, it didn't work out, but it felt like the right thing to do at the time. Just not all plans work out. They don't. They don't. Now, with the forgeries and all the different things, can you credit art class for that? I mean, like, how did you get good at this stuff? You know, I don't think my professors really thought that that was what they were training me for. <laughs> but it did definitely worked out. Like I figured out how to make fake IDs. I figured out how to make fake birth certificates, social security cards, basically documents that could pass mustard. And then what happens is when you're building like a, a legend or a, like a synthetic identity or something, you start with some forgeries to get the real documents. And then you use those real documents to get more documents. And before you know it, you don't need the forgeries. You've got nothing but real documentation. You're able to get driver's licenses and passports and bank accounts and houses. And so, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, let's face it. Most people just are not going to be able to make a birth certificate. They're just not going to be able to how to kind of reverse engineer it. Yeah. Not me. Not me. 
Now, I read several articles and I'm curious. I thought this was funny because I was curious, like, was there an incident or in your childhood that you felt like, man, I just can't beat the system. And finally, here's a way I can beat the system. But this one article implied that because you're five, six and I'm five, five, by the way, but because you were five, six, you weren't in the highest pecking order in South Florida. Right. And so you couldn't get ahead legitimately. But like I'm five, five, I'm an inch shorter. I haven't been like super motivated to commit felonies yet. Yet, I mean, it's still possible. There's time. But I'm curious, like in your childhood, were there things where you were or was it just fun? Like, it's just fun to tell a story. It's fun to challenge or F the system. It screwed up my parents and I'm going to get payback. Like, was there any of that or it was just like I'm a dog chasing a car? Like I said, it was like this is going to sound horrible, but I was good at it. Yeah. Like I'd never been this good at anything ever. And I was confident. I was able to, most people, they can't, I've talked to bank robbers and drug dealers and guys that have done things that I'm like, that's insane. You know, guys that have done home invasions, like I would never do that. And they're like, you walked into a bank with completely fake information (laughs) and handed to the person and sat there for 45 minutes to an hour, two hours. And I'm like, right. They're like, that's insane. Right. They're like, I would never, I'd be terrified. But that seemed perfectly okay to be like, I would argue with you. If you were the loan officer or the manager and there was an issue with something, like, I'm not leaving. We're arguing. Right. <laughs> now, this is right. Call your manager. Call this. Do this. Do that. Like, I'm not leaving. Well, we're going to call the police. Call the police. And they're like, oh, Jesus, you know, and next thing you know, they're cashing a check for you. So I was very confident about it and I was confident in my ability to do it. And so as a result of that, I just continued on with that lifestyle because it's a lot easier than getting a real job. Yeah. You know, but you still have to work. It's just uh, different work. Yeah, it's different. It's different work. You know, it's funny because a decent person would have just gotten a full time job. And if he needed more money, he'd get a part time job (laughs) and he'd work a little bit harder. And that's kind of when, you know, you're like, oh, wow, you're just a scumbag. Like I decided to go with fraud (laughs) because it was easier and I was good at it instead of just getting a regular job and maybe getting another degree that was more useful at the time. But yeah, well, hey, it pays a little quicker. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I mentioned this briefly before, but around this time when people were doing stated loans and there was a lot of fraud and people were buying houses, they couldn't afford and all that stuff. But I had a client who coincidentally was named Matt. So I don't know if there's a commonality there, but Matt also did a lot of fraud to the tunes of millions and millions of dollars. And he was a client for mine for a very short period. But when they caught him, he basically said, well, Bob did everything. (laughs) And so about five days before tax season, two agents walk into my office. They show me their guns to let me know I shouldn't run. And I immediately almost wet my pants. And they proceed to tell me that I've masterminded this mortgage fraud, to which I'm like, he was a client for six months. I only did one tax return. I thought things were weird. I disengaged. And they ultimately believed me. But it was a terrifying experience, even just being accused, because they were ready to shoot me. Or I thought they were ready to shoot me, but that's me. I'm not, I'm like, I'll stay, I'll come close to the line, but I don't want to cross it unless I have absolute guarantee that I won't get caught. Right. (laughs) Okay. Right. (laughs) Right. But that's the fear factor for me. It's the fear factor. When you got caught, was there relief? Was there... Once again, it's like everybody's (laughs) like being on the run. It was... I was almost relieved when I got caught. Right. And I wasn't relieved. I (laughs) loved being on the run. I enjoyed committing fraud. And I know that's the wrong thing to say, but you know, it is what it is. And when I got caught, I remember exactly what my thought was. I had a girlfriend at the time. Her name was Amanda. And all week, 
like Amanda was a planner. We're going to go to this, whatever, this fair, and we're on Saturday. And we're going to, so all week, I remember her saying, Hey, listen, on Saturday morning, we're going to brunch with so and so. I said, Okay, that's fine. But on Friday, I want to see Casino Royale because it was just coming out. And I love James Bond. Right. It's good. I said, We're going to see Casino Royale. And she goes, We're going to go see, I, I know that. Okay. And the next day, she says, Hey, listen, on Sunday, there's a festival, the medieval festival, whatever. We're going to go with so-and-so and so-and-so. I said, okay, but on Friday, we're going to see, because I know that. Okay, hey, Thursday, we're going to go to dinner. Can we go to dinner on such and such? That's fine. But Friday, she's, yeah, Casino Royale. So when I finally get arrested, it was like a Thursday. Ugh. I get arrested. So they pull up, they in the car, get on the ground and the whole thing. And I get on the ground, I get up and they put the cuffs. I've got the cuffs on. They're looking at me and they go, Hey, Mr. Cox, we've been looking for you. And my first thought was, I'm not going to be able to see James Bond on Friday. I'm not going to see Casino Royale. Yeah. Like you're not. And I never did. I never did see it. That was my first thought was, I'm not going to be able to see Casino Royale. And that was a good movie. It was a really good movie. It was a good movie. I saw it about five years later on the prison movie channel. I did see it. Yeah. So yeah, I know exactly. I said there wasn't a moment of, oh, thank God. There was a moment of, damn. Mm. Yeah, it's not good. Stuff's a bad day. <laughs> yeah, that would suck. I mean, I wouldn't mind missing the medieval fair. But festival? Yeah, festival. Those are great. I mean, I guess they're fun, but it's a good movie. So when you went to prison, were people impressed? I know that you weren't at like high security and I don't think you were like with rapists and murderers and stuff like that, but maybe you were, but... I was. Oh, you were? And were people happy that you defrauded the system? People didn't care? I mean, do people compare like hey, you did that. That's cool. I mean, initially when I got arrested, I, it had been on the news. So by the time they processed me and I got into the actual U.S. Marshals holding facility and I walked into the room and I looked up like everybody looked over at me and this guy goes, you were just on the news. And I was like, I was? And I'm in like a orange jumpsuit or a yellow jumpsuit or something. And they were like, yeah, man, you stole millions, man. You stole millions, man. You like that. I was just like, oh God. It's not good. Like, it's not, when you're on the news, it's not good. Right. So, yeah, there was a level of people being impressed. I mean, look, oh God, what's the name of this? I think it's Charles Ford. He wrote a book called Liar, Liar, The Art of Deception. Anyway, he says that basically in the criminal world, like the con man or frauds are like, they're at the top. Like the guys at the bottom, the guys, you know, the bank robbers and drug dealers, like they aspire to be that in the criminal underworld. So I came in at the top, which is great, I guess, if, you know, you want to be on the top of the shit pile. Then I eventually went to prison. I went to a medium. And like the first day I was there, somebody got stabbed on the rec yard. Oh. You know, and the medium was like a real prison. Like I didn't go to a camp. I never made it to a camp. I went from a medium for three years. And then eventually I went to a low, which was okay, but it's still a prison. Right. You're not going to the spa. You're not like, yeah, no spas. It wasn't bad. Here's the problem is it sucks, but it's not as bad as it could have been. It's probably better than I deserved. And it's like, you know, guys would complain. And I'd be like, well, when you were robbing banks, what did you think was going to happen? <laughs> they complain about the food. Well, what did you think? Well, at least they'll serve me good food when I get arrested. Like, I mean, you're selling crack. Yeah. What did you think? They were going to get there and they were going to treat you like a, they were going to wait on you? Like, it sucks. It's supposed to suck. Yeah. It's a lifestyle adjustment. <laughs> it is. <laughs> you're not getting unlimited sushi. <laughs> right. You'd be shocked what you can get used to. Like after the first decade, it wasn't that bad. Yeah. <laughs> Took a couple of days. 
But I mean, the first couple of weeks, was it still like, holy crap? Well, yeah. I mean, it's just got to be sort of like, oh, crap, because you knew it's a possibility and everybody was looking, but now you're here. Now it's a reality. You know, the, I think the real problem was that I'm so arrogant and I'm so cocky that I just genuinely didn't think I was ever going to get caught. Yeah. I never pictured myself in jail, in prison. Right. I just didn't picture it. So when it was happening, it was like, wow, like you're going to be here. This is not good. Like you didn't plan for this. Like I'm a schemer. I'm a planner. That was not one of the things I planned for. When you did plan for writing books, though, you sort of got, you're sitting there spending time doing nothing. I mean, I never thought about it, but I guess you can earn money from your books while you're in prison. It's funny. It's the one thing you really can earn money from in prison. That's about it, right? Because not a lot you can do. Listen, like, think about it. You would think, okay, well, you know what I can do in prison? I could run an accounting firm. (laughs) You could. Right. Think about it. You've got guys that will work for virtually nothing. All they have to do is balance the numbers. Like you could run a whole accounting fit, but they won't let you. But writing articles and stories and being paid for them, you cannot be a staff writer for a magazine or paper, but you can be an independent contractor where you sell them. So you're allowed to write. So one thing the BOP, they say, there's like a mandate where they say they encourage it. I never saw any encouragement. So I don't know about that part. (laughs) But you are allowed to actually make money doing that, which is what I did. Yeah. So in a way, they gave you your second career. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Right. I would have never done this if it weren't for. Because you wouldn't have been sitting around with people with crazy stories and murders and robberies and all that stuff to be able to do your podcast and write your stories. And to be honest with you, if I had not been forced to sit down for 13 years Mm -hmm. and kind of take a deep reflection of myself, look at myself and then I think I would have probably gotten back out and committed fraud again. And I don't think I would have stopped. And I don't think it wasn't until I really sat down and read those articles and heard what people were saying about me before I ever really realized what I was doing and the detriment of it, not only, let's say, to, I don't know, society, banking, but, you know, to myself, to my family, like those things never even occurred to me. Yeah. But definitely, you know, but then again, what kind of a con man would I be if I went to prison? I was surrounded by all this true crime intellectual property. If I didn't (laughs) say, hey, there's got to be a way to somehow turn this into something. You meet these guys that have amazing stories and they can't write them. It's hard for articulate, intelligent, well-educated people to write their own stories. Right. So Danny, who's got a GED from prison isn't probably going to be able to write his story, but he has an amazing story. So I was able to kind of go in there and I wrote my story and guys were reading it. And then I wrote Ephraim Deveroli's memoir, the guy from War Dogs, Jonah Hill plays him in that movie. And I wrote his memoir and then other guys started approaching me. And so I started writing their stories and I started optioning their film rights or their life rights to their stories. And I was doing that from inside prison. And plus I I had time to really research those stories in order of Freedom of Information Act. And it became a lot of fun and it made my time blow by. Like it was fast. The last few years were just like whipping by. It's interesting. I have this whole premise that every story has a cost and certainly, you know, mental maps. But these stories that you're sharing certainly had a cost because everybody you were talking to got caught. Yeah. So did you find that most people that there was regret or that they had the time to reflect that it was humbling experience or most people are like, shit, if I had the opportunity, I'd do it again. There's one or two of the guys that I'd say didn't learn their lesson, one or two of them, but I'd say most of them did. Listen, 
almost everybody I've written stories about is out and have jobs, wives, kids, making money. Like they learn their lesson. Was it the right lesson? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it was just, I'm not going to do that again. Like it's too good out here for me to risk going back to prison. But there were some guys that you truly, I met and I would speak with and they'd had like just life altering revelation of what they had done to themselves and the situation they were in. And I mean, I know the appropriate thing is to say, you know, what they did to society and the people they hurt, but look, whether or not they decided to change or not, or realize, hey, this, I can't continue to behave like this. And everybody named Pete, who's in prison for the murder of two FBI informants. He's a nice guy. So <laughs> really nice guy if you're not FBI. <laughs> right, right. They weren't FBI, they were informants. But anyway. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he didn't do it. He didn't do it. He, whenever I say I'm like Pete, and he's like, all I did was move the bodies. So he always says, you know, you can't go to prison and be in prison and continue to think the same way you were prior to prison and then get out of prison and expect to not come back. Like you have to come and you have to look at yourself and you have to change or you will come back, period. Like even if guys say, oh, well, I'm not going to commit another crime. It doesn't matter. You'll do something. You will. Eventually, those, your thought process will lead you back to the same behavior and you will end up back in prison. Yeah. And I just didn't want that to happen. Yeah. And do you still work with law enforcement on fraud and crimes now? I know you did for a little bit. Because I guess it's still happening, right? You're not the last. You won't be the last. No, I work with a company called Home Title Lock. Mm -hmm. And they have a system where you sign up and they monitor your title to keep people from being able to steal your title. Got it. And so I work with them. I don't work with law enforcement at all anymore. I mean, I don't work in to avoid them. But no, that's not really happening. Well, at least you've got this new career because you can't work in insurance, right? No, or mortgages. Or the mortgages. But since you've gotten out, have you bought a house? No, but I've only been out three years. Okay. And a part of that, you know, I was in the halfway house for part of that. Then I was living in someone's spare room for about 18 months. You know, it's not like I got out and there was people waiting to hand me money and give me opportunities. So I basically am renting a house. And I don't think I could buy a house anyway at this point because my probation officer probably wouldn't let me. I'm still on federal probation. Oh, okay. And everything I do, I have to get a permission, get permission. Like I had begged to get permission to buy a car. I'm under a lot of scrutiny, not so much now as I was the first two years. The last year has been a lot lighter, mm -hmm. but yeah, I don't see her letting me do that. Do that anytime soon. How has your relationship changed since you've gotten out to money? How has your relationship with money changed or has it? Like, what is the relationship with money now? Because people are watching you. I think that for a long time, I really had this foolish idea that if I made money and was successful, I was going to become happy. And I was just never really happy. And I think that you go to prison and it's like the great equalizer. Yeah. I'm stripped of everything and I'm living in probably something that's about the size of your bathroom. Yeah. With two other guys, bunk beds, and it's horrible. And there's 180 guys sharing six toilets and a couple of urinals. And I mean, it's a rough existence. And you know, your expectations of life, I think, get really low and you start enjoying just the minor little tiny things. And when I was out and I had, you know, millions of dollars, like I was never really a happy person. And then while I was locked up, I kind of became, I felt happier. I think I got a purpose in life. And so getting out of prison and not having any money and being happy, I need money to pay my bills. I'm not turning down money. Right, sure. 
what I'm not doing is I'm not solely doing things for money. Right. You know, I do things that make me happy, that I enjoy, and I hope the money will come. So far, I've been lucky. I pay my bills. I don't really even have a job. I mean, I write stories. I do my podcast and yeah. I do interviews. I do keynote speaking, you know, engagements. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the month, I somehow or another keep coming up with money to pay all my bills. So I'm certainly not struggling for money. I don't have the kind of money I used to have, but I would say my relationship with money is that it's vastly different. When thinking about my happiness or being happy, I don't think that that's really even one of the factors anymore, where it was a huge factor before. Yeah. Well, and that's what most of us think. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Especially, look, you have to know that money is not everything when you have someone like Robin Williams killing himself and half these filthy rich guys that will kill themselves. And you're like, you're kidding me. This guy had everything. Yeah. And then he killed him. I mean, yeah, but money doesn't, it's not. It's only money. Right. <laughs> it's only money. Well, Matt, we're at the Fast Five, so we're going to shift it up a little bit, change the energy a little bit. Fast Five is brought to you by Survey Junkie. Join millions who take online surveys and make extra cash. You could do online surveys, Matt. Click on the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, we're going to just jump in and let's have some fun. What would you say to a younger person who's taking their first steps towards crossing the line legally? Oh, I would say it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's absolutely not worth it. You ever talk to those guys that say, oh, would you do it again? Or yeah, because it made me the person I am. And I listen, man, it's not worth it. <laughs> I assure you that the system is set up to take everything from you and then some and start you at a disadvantage for the rest of your life. So all the justifications that you can give yourself to commit that crime, I promise you yeah, that they're absolutely wrong. Honestly, like most people, every bad decision I've ever made was based on my pride. Every single one. Yeah. So ego gets in trouble. You got to think about that. You have to think, am I making this decision based on the fact that I don't want to go backwards? Am I making this decision based on the fact that I want a new car, that I want a nicer house, that I want, those are all bad. Oh, I'm going to do this so I make more money because I want my son to have a better life. I think your son would rather you just take him to the movies. Yeah. Or if I just do this one and then I'll stop. Yeah. No. <laughs> just do it once. Listen, the worst thing <laughs> is doing that one and it works. Yeah. That's the worst. That's the worst. Because now it's definitely not going to end. Not end well. Now, I know the first thing that went through your mind when you got arrested was you didn't get to see Casino Royale. But what was the first thing that went through your mind when you walked into prison? This is a bad environment. (laughs) Not good. I remember thinking, (laughs) I told you that the first day of prison, I was introduced to my celly and I walked in and the CO was like, hey, this is so-and-so. Hey, you're going to be his celly. Show him where the cell is. Okay, shake his hand. And within five minutes, the alarms are going off. My celly comes up, says, hey, they're locking everybody down. We got to get in the room. And I was like, why? What happened? He goes, somebody just got stabbed in the wreck yard. And I went, someone got killed in the wreck yard? And he goes, nah, they just stabbed them up a little bit. <laughs> and I thought, this is a bad environment. Like, this is not going to be good for you. Like, this guy's actually just said they stabbed them up a little bit. Right. It's not a bad. This is bad. It's all wrong. <laughs> it's not a bad stabbing. <laughs> you're, you're not going to do well here. Not comforting. Right. Not comforting. Is there anything you still miss about being on the run and making tax-free money? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, being on the run. <laughs> Honestly, it was an absolute exhilarating. I know. I know. This is the wrong thing to say. Like. People even the comments like, oh, this guy's a jerk or he's a scumbag or whatever. And all of that's true. 
But in the end, honestly, it was an exhilarating experience. Yeah. And listen, there's a lot of money. Like there's just nothing like having half a million in cash in a duffel bag. Yeah. You feel like you're living in a movie. I mean, it had a horrible ending for me, but it also had the appropriate ending too. Yeah. So, you know. These aren't great answers. Go ahead. No, no, they're, they're they're truthful answers, and that's really what matters. If you could say one thing to the FBI agents who caught you, what would you say? I mean, besides, I'm not going to catch my movie, but is there anything else you might say? No, because I talked to them. Blind. It was, I said everything I had to say. <laughs> they know. I mean, honestly, like, it's funny because the Secret Service was super professional. Mm-hmm. The FBI was not professional. The FBI agent that I talked to, Although I've met a bunch of FBI agents that are actually pretty cool. They're just doing their jobs. And it's not like they're looking for justification from me. Like, well, I hope he still likes us. <laughs> right. I wonder if we'll have dinner. <laughs> yeah. no, that's not what they're thinking. Yeah. Maybe we'll catch a movie next week. <laughs> yeah. Do you still feel like you're a mastermind? No. You know, what's so funny is to hear that about yourself, to read that. Yeah. Like, it's insane. I think that I'm extremely creative. I know that I definitely think in a way that most people don't. I see things in a way that most people don't because I'm creative. I don't know about mastermind, but I'm not even sure what that means. <laughs> but it's kind of cool to read that about yourself. And the fact that, God, I remember reading an article about me one time with my girlfriend. They were just saying horrible things. I was like, that's not true. That's not true. That's <laughs> not true. And then she read and she said that there's some psychiatrist from like John Jay College in New York who said, guys like Cox are charming. And I was like, that's true. <laughs> charming. I'm charming. Did you hear that? <laughs> charming. She's like, yeah, well, a lot of this is true. It's not the only thing. Well, you know, pick the good stuff. Charming is a good one. All right. That's the Fast Five. We're at the M&M, Money and Motivation. Let me ask you this. Nowadays, do you have a practical financial tip or piece of wealth wisdom? I know you talked about like money is not happiness, but is there something that now at this point, that you've used as a guide? I mean, <laughs> I'm on federal probation for bank fraud. Yeah. No, I mean, I can't think of it, honestly. Like, you know. I mean, are you allowed to have a savings account? Okay, you can't vote, probably can't have a gun, and you have to have permission to get a house. But basic stuff, you can still, can you have a credit card? I mean, can you? Yeah, I have credit cards. Any types of lines of credit I have to get approved while on federal probation. (laughs) But when I was in the halfway house, you're in the Bureau of Prisons custody. So while I was in the halfway house, I got several credit cards. Okay. In the halfway house, before I was on probation. Okay. But then when I was on probation, they didn't really care because they're monitoring me so closely. They just don't want me to run up a lot of debt. You know, what's so funny is everybody's got bad credit. Well, I'm not everybody, but people have bad credit. So like I got out of prison, got three credit cards, walked out of the halfway house, Six months later, I had 754 credit scores. Wow. From nothing, straight out of prison, over 750 credit scores. <laughs> you know, I've got a 100% loan on a vehicle because, of course, part of my crime was I was building synthetic identities. Right. Where I was getting social security to issue social security numbers to people that don't exist. And then I was building their credit. So I'm very good with credit. <laughs> Like my financial tip, it's funny. I talked to some real estate guys the other day and they were like, bro, like with the way the market's going down and this and that, like, I don't know what to do. And I was like, buy single family houses. (laughs) 
Yeah. And they were like, why? I was like, buy single family houses in lower income neighborhoods. They were like, bro, why? And I said, convert them to rooming houses. Yeah. Because when people start hurting for places to live, they'll rent rooms. And, you know, you don't have to run a slum. It's not like you're running, you're a slumlord. Right. You know, if you want to make it sound trendy, you can call them micro lofts or mini (laughs) suites or something. You can make it sound good. (laughs) Exactly. But yeah, like I'd buy single family houses and rent out the rooms and I'd turn the living room and dining room into a bedroom and buy as many as you can. And when the market turns around, you just gut them and resell them. I mean, but people will be moving into rooms when money's tight. It's about to get tight. That's something to think about. Yeah. And it is getting tight. It is getting tight. All right. Go out and buy single family homes, folks. Okay. Do the math too. Yeah. Rooms rent for like 150 to $200 a week. If you buy a three bedroom, two bath and turn the living room and dining room into a bedroom, do the math. You're bringing in like thirty-four, $3,500 a month. And what's your mortgages? Your PITI is what? Your mortgage and you know insurance taxes and insurance are going to be what? $700, $1,000, $1,100? Yeah. You pay for the water and electric. Let's say it's another three, 400 bucks. I mean, you're pocketing $1,500 to $2,000 a month. I mean, you can really like, that's way better than a rental, than renting it to a family. Yeah, for sure. So- Something to think about. Something to think about. Something to think about. Well, Matt, where can people find your book? Where can they find your podcast and all the good stuff? I've got, I think, five or six books on Amazon. My memoirs on Amazon. It's called Shark in the Housing Pool. And I've written several other guys' stories. I'm on YouTube, which is under Matthew Cox, Inside True Crime. Basically, the channel is just me interviewing other criminals and talking about their stories and that sort of thing. No, it sounds fascinating. And there's a lot of folks out there that have committed crimes, that have thought about committing crimes, or just loving listening to crimes. So we'll put all that in the show notes and have everybody check you out. I so appreciate you taking the time. This has been really fascinating. Having had federal agents with guns at my office, that's about as far as I've gotten. So I mean, let's hope it stops there. (laughs) That's enough. (laughs) But I so appreciate it. I appreciate your honesty and wish you well. All right. Well, I appreciate you having me on. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Did you learn something new about your relationship to money today? Maybe you have a friend who has some financial blocks or beliefs that are holding them back. Please share this podcast so they too can get off the roller coaster ride of financial fears and journey towards financial freedom. To learn how to have a healthy relationship with money, visit themoneynerve.com. That's nerve, not nerd. We'll be back next week with another perspective on money and the emotions that bind us. 